Welcome everyone to this uh, new series that we're, that we're doing uh, on evidence-based medicine. What is it? How do we practice it? How do we get better at it? Um, this is the first episode um, where if everyone's been uh, listening to uh, our Cause Health series, um, where we went through um, Cause Health and their philosophy and, and, and view on evidence-based medicine, um, they'll be very familiar with this type of format uh, because this project very much came from um, the Cause Health project where we took a whole bunch of people from our Cause Health researchers and clinicians involved with the project and talked about how they approach evidence-based medicine, how we can get better, some very theoretical basis to that. And um, the idea for this series is pretty much how do we do that exact same thing, but we grab clinicians um, who aren't involved with Cause Health, uh, who have might have some ideas that uh, maybe don't completely agree, uh, maybe some expansions, maybe some different ideas, um, get them all involved, get them to come and give their two cents. Uh, but really also the big focus being on extending that out, sending that invite uh, for guests out to clinicians, people at the coalface, people who are actually practicing evidence-based medicine and getting their tips, tricks, thoughts, ideas, um, experiences uh, as to how they uh, become as evidence-based um, in their treatments and therapies as they possibly can. So I would recommend um, going and looking at our Cause Health series. Uh, it probably will help uh, understand a bit more about what, what uh, the types of things we talk about here, or at least the things that, that I will talk about. Um, but if you're joining and you haven't had the Cause Health series, you haven't watched it, you aren't aware of it, that's okay because we've got some uh, great chats coming up uh, with some clinicians and it's all about being uh, clinically based. So with that out of the way, um, for those who don't know me, I'm Alex Murray. I'm a podiatrist. I'm a strength and conditioning coach. I work predominantly with musculoskeletal uh, conditions uh, based here in Canberra, Australia. And I'm really excited uh, to bring on for this first episode uh, two wonderful guests, people that need no introduction, but we probably should give it to them, uh, Ben Cormack and Adam Meekins of the Better Clinician Project. How are you guys going? All good. Yeah, so I'm very, I'm just going to dive in and take over here. So yeah, no, I'm very well. Thank you, Alex. Uh, thank you for inviting us on to have a chat. Um, actually, I'm now a full-time professor of philosophy. I'm no longer a clinician. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually a joke. I'm not really. Tell me something I I'll believe. Say, yeah, I just wanted to mess you up a little bit there. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for having us on. Yeah, well, well, well let's start, start with you, Ben. Just give, give us a, an introduction about who you are and, and, and what you do. Uh, that's not being a professor of philosophy. Yeah, that was just a joke, people, by the way. I'm sure someone will go, no, you're not, Ben. You're not, you're not, you're not. And it's right, I'm not. Um, I'm Ben. I am a humble, uh, musculoskeletally based uh, clinician. Um, probably less at the coalface than I was a few years ago. I got very dirty at the coalface. You have to wash a lot. Um, and I find that, you know, not doing that is much easier. Um, and, you know, these days, uh, a lot of my time is spent uh, more in an educational role with things like the Better Clinician Project alongside that other chap. I can't see where he is exactly on the screen, but I'll I mean, the better half, the better clinician. The oh, better, the better half. half. Okay, all the right. Better, the better half, the better clinician project. 
Yeah, so Adam, um, or actually before we go on, Ben, you know, you're, as in addition to the Better Clinician Project, you also have your own page and your own mentorship and in your own uh, programs as well through through Core Kinetic. That's that's correct. That is very uh, very true, and thank you for highlighting that, Alex. I'm not always. I am. I am a, probably a, a relentless self promoter, um, but I don't often always promote very well. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, Someone who probably is um, needs no introduction um, because of, of uh, the heated conversations that he causes online. Uh, but Adam, Adam Meekins, do you want to give us a bit of bit of an intro? Yeah, sure. So again, thanks uh, for inviting us on, Alex. Uh, looking forward to the chat. I'm going to say that I am, as I say, the better looking half, the more intelligent half. I'm what holds up the Better Clinician Project with. Uh, the other colleague, Ben Cormack down there. So my background is uh, I'm a physiotherapist. Uh, I've also did my first degree in sports science. Uh, so I can class myself as a sports scientist, although I very rarely do. And I've also got training in strength and conditioning uh, certifications as well. So I've got a bit of a mixed background, uh, but I tend to just go by physiotherapist as a title. Uh, I work in the NHS still, so I'm still very much on the cold face. So I work in an orthopedic and trauma role where I sit in a uh, first contact practitioner role where I'm seeing people coming in with various different musculoskeletal conditions. It's mainly of the upper limb. So it tends to be in the upper limb service that I work most of the time. Uh, I've got a special interest in the management of the upper limb and the shoulder as well. And I also do private consultations and uh, assessments as well. But as just like Ben said, I'm also doing a lot more now in education with the Better Clinician Project and also have my own educational courses as well in simplifying the shoulder, which has a reputation for being a bit complex when it doesn't necessarily need to be. So that's me in a nutshell. Sweet, thank you. Um, I guess well, we can crack straight on and and it's sort of a, an interesting sort of first question uh, for you guys. Is evidence-based the new sort of functional training or the new sort of, it needs to be functional? Smiles already. Yeah, great question. Um, uh, when you say functional, I think, do you mean, is it a bit of a buzzword that's used like functional training is? So I think, you know, I would probably say it is in some cases. I think some people are using it as a bit of a, a buzzword. I think a lot of people are saying they're evidence-based practice, but actually not being evidence-based practiced. I think there's a lot of uh, talking a good game and not so much of acting a good game. And there's a lot of misrepresentation of being an evidence-based practitioner as well. Lots of people just assume being an evidence-based practitioner means reading bloody 10 research papers a week, and therefore you can class yourself as being evidence-based. But if you're not actually assimilating that information, you're not actually applying it into clinical practice, then I would say just reading evidence doesn't make you automatically an evidence-based practitioner. And just because you don't read a shitload of evidence also doesn't mean you're not an evidence-based practitioner. You know, there's a common misconception there that, you know, you have to be knee-deep, bollock-deep in research, reading journals, left, right, and center to be classed as an evidence-based practitioner. I don't agree with that at all, I think, as I say. So, yes, in a nutshell, I do think that the term being evidence-based is, uh, is used by some as I say, just to talk a good game. And also I think sometimes is misunderstood and misrepresented. Hmm. I'd get you to, to come, in, come in on this, Ben, and sort of comment because Adam's highlighted that that you don't need to be knee deep in, in evidence to be evidence-based. 
Um, he said, mate. <laughs> semantics. Um, and this is the problem with evidence, semantics, um, very topical. Um, but being, you know, how, what is evidence-based then? If, if it's not reading heaps of research and it's and it's also not reading heaps of research, what what is actually that point? What is uh, where, where we say this is evidence-based and, and this isn't? Well, what is being evidence-based really? Well, I, no, I mean, if you were to go back to, to what Sackett and people like that talked about, you know, it, there would be this uh, being evidence-based is partly what is uh, what is published, partly is, you know, the experience of, of the clinician or the practitioner, and then also this aspect of uh, patient preference, which I think is the most misunderstood and misused part of um, the whole evidence-based triangle but I think there's this sometimes it, it's a bit like the BPS modeling that we pick the little bit that you know we we want to justify the treatment uh, that we use so look I, I do think that if you want to talk about evidence-based medicine evidence-based practice evidence-informed what, how whatever terminology I do think you have to have an understanding a little bit of what that means and I think the big misconception is somehow being evidence-based gives you an answer. You know, this idea of something works, like exercise works or manual therapy works. And actually, the more I read and understand evidence, the less clear it all becomes anyway. Um, so actually, I think being evidence-based often means you don't really know what's going on. Um, and, that you know, it, it's not as clear. And that's where the buzzword comes from, I think. I'm evidence-based. I'm doing the right thing. I think being evidence-based is an appreciation of the literature, of opinion, of experience, et cetera. But I don't think it quite gives the clarity that people think it does. So yeah, it's, I have to agree with that and say the same thing, you know, there's a common misconception of being evidence-based. It gives you, you know, engaging with the research gives you clear, definitive black and white answers. And it actually does the opposite. It gives you, it gives you an appreciation of the uncertainty and a, and a tolerance of probability. That's what being an evidence-based practitioner yeah. does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's the great word. It's, it's, it's probably more. It's probably more about probabilities. <laughs> I guess the, it sort of drives straight at this one of these sort of approaches that we that I see a lot with with evidence and evidence-based practices that that science has the answer. Um, and I see that sort of as being a dichotomy where some people go science doesn't have the answer because to be fair, it, it doesn't have all the answers, but it has some. Um, and people who go science has the answer and therefore at least some of these answers might must um, tell us uh, everything that we need to know. Um, I think science tells us when we're least likely to be wrong. I think that's a better way of looking at it rather than saying definitely knowing what is right. It, you know, it, the, the fundamental principle of science, of research, of evidence is, is to find out what, try to disprove what you think is going on, falsibility. So, you know, that's, that's a fundamental principle. So I think we can say, you know, we're less likely to be wrong following the evidence-based literature. But are we right? Not always. Hmm. So if I think if, if I think about someone listening to this and then sort of go, great, I, I know what not to do. Mm -hmm. How would you go about determining what is, is the right thing to do then? Well, again, it's about balancing probability. It's about, you know, looking at lots of different 
factors based on the current situation uh, that you're in. So there is no definitive, this is more right, because it depends on, you know, lots of different factors. It depends on the patient, depends on your situation, depends on your your thinking, it depends on the patient's thinking. So all these things have to be taken into consideration as to what is the more right thing to do. Uh, so it isn't a case of saying, you know, it's this and this, it's, it is so dependent on so many different confounding variables and factors. It's almost an impossible question to answer. It's like when people ask me all the time, what's, what's the exercise I should be doing for this shoulder that hurts? I'm like, well, there, there isn't one, it depends. You're like, well, you know, give me the answer. Tell me what's the best thing to do. And I'm like, that's not how it works. You know, it depends on so many different variables. But I think there has been a bit of a problem in the way that we've, you know, sometimes the way that experiments are set up or the way that we look at evidence-based medicine and this idea of rejecting or accepting a hypothesis. So in the, if you set up an experiment like that, there is a yes or a no answer, isn't there? This idea that you reach this alpha level, this threshold, this p-value, and therefore you reject or accept a hypothesis, which is generally whether one thing is better than another, right? So, you know, is exercise A better than exercise B? Is treatment type A better than treatment type B? You know, you accept one and reject the other. Um, and, and that's what we would look at as a kind of a uh, that a fish fisherian viewpoint isn't it you know that was how fisher set up that original kind of uh perspective value got, you mean. yeah and that was back in the 1930s wasn't it fisher and nyman pearson nyman pearson um but if you look at a more probability based model so you're looking at kind of this idea of uh, an effect size a confidence interval that is less about just simply accepting or rejecting according to a, a significance. It's actually looking at a, 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 a parameter, which is this parameter of probability, isn't it? And I think that people definitely need to start understanding research for what it is. And I think research needs to maybe um, talk in probability language rather than this definitive language of A is better than B. So I think this is where we do need to understand what research actually is and maybe have a little bit of an understanding of the philosophy of research and what it's actually trying to tell us a little bit. And I think that's one of the big problems that we have is that we've set it up in a way that does give us definitive yes or no's when that definitive yes or no probably isn't that definitive. It's, it's, so it's, it's, if we were to boil that down, what you're saying is read, read and understand the methods of a paper. Um, understand what oh no research... just jump straight to the conclusion Alex never read the methods they'll only confuse no yeah absolutely well this is the point it's about it's not just the methods the results because obviously that's where the statistics generally are but this is where you know some people say you know you maybe just listen to other people's opinions about research is enough I don't agree because I think that sometimes you do need to have a little bit of a basic understanding to be able to make your own interpretation about what this is saying. Because research in a probability sense isn't about definitives. It is about probabilities, inference and opinion quite a lot. I think, and that's that's sort of a conclusion we sort of, we, we reached in our course health sort of series very quickly is that um the way that, that that methods are set up is to try and show yes is one better than the other and that's exactly what you've highlighted and i think to sort of bring in in adam's point when you're thinking about you've got to when it's that sort of it depends we've got to think about all the different situations that might 
change a result that might um, determine it. So I, I'm thinking about, you know, you guys on the Better Clinician Project have just done um, a month talking about heel pain. And, you know, which, you know, you talked about, you know, two different groups of people um, getting heel pain. Uh, these people that are generally more athletic, potentially younger, and this older sort of group, less athletic, more sedentary, generally female, potentially overweight. Um, these are two sort of um, more likely groups that get it. But, you know, we see a lot of research um, homogenize that group. They don't, they don't separate out and where they're not following that um, sort of a thought process through of trying to figure out who is it more likely to work from. It's just working from the basis of this is the condition and therefore what is the best treatment. So I'm wondering if you guys have any advice that if we're going to, to look at research and try and read it a bit more, look at the methods, understand what's happening, how do you navigate this um, sort of quagmire really of research that is answering questions or posing questions and then answering them that's probably not the correct question well definitely quiet silence there because i don't think anybody wants to jump in and answer that very uh challenging question mate um <laughs> i'm just gonna uh i'm just um, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> How how do you navigate? So I think the first thing you mentioned there about, you know, what do you do when researchers homogenized a population and you are seeing somebody who doesn't fit with that population in a research trial? The simple answer is we have to take it with a huge pinch of salt that we've got a different person in front of us that doesn't match the population of a research trial. And just because that research trial says this works for this particular condition, we've got to recognize this person doesn't match that. So there is some ambiguity there straight away. Um, how do I navigate trying to get evidence across to patients when there is perhaps, you know, evidence or there is a lack of evidence out there to say what to do or how to proceed? It's a, it's a case of fully informing the patient of that openly and honestly. And I think that is where, again, you know, Sackett talks about including the patient uh, in the shared decision-making process and getting informed consent from them. Uh, and I think, you know, Sackett's theory or hierarchical model of evidence-based practice has been bastardized massively over the years because, you know, that has been said, you know, patient's preference gets so misconstrued uh, by so-called healthcare professionals, evidence-based professionals to think that it means just doing whatever the patient wants or expects. And that's never something that's ever been discussed or mentioned. It's about presenting options to patients based on what the evidence and the literature tells us and what I tend to do in my mind is obviously stack up the things that I think based on my understanding of what's got the highest level of evidence but present all of the options as best as you can to the patient and say these are your treatment selections starting off with here here and here and here and here and yeah. here these are the things that I think are better suited for your particular situation. But there are also these things over here that could also potentially assist aid as well. Fully explaining the risks, the benefits as well. So that's something I don't think often gets done. We all tend to promote the benefits of treatment, but we don't tend to promote the risks. Uh, also talking about what happens if you don't have that treatment. Is there any adverse effects from just leaving it alone and not having that treatment? 
So, you know, all these sort of discussions are, are what needs to be had to the patient. And then the patient at the end, after they've got all that information and you've given your opinion, you've given your expert, you know, clinical expertise into the situation, then the patient's preference is the last bit at the end where they go, okay, they then make that final decision as to what they want to do and proceed with. So I, I like old Eric Mirror's funneling system when it comes to the evidence-based practice model. It's not using these three pillars, as a lot of people talk about. It's using a funneling system where evidence is at the top. You funnel it down into your clinical expertise, whether you've synthesized it and processed it and prioritized what's better and what's not based on your understanding and guess a little bit of biases as well. And then you present all that to the patient. And with a shared decision making, the patient's preferences are taken into consideration at the end. So yeah it's a tricky question to answer but i would say there's a lot of times we haven't got much research to say to a patient this is definitively the best thing to do or not to do it's a case of just saying openly and honestly this is the situation as far as we know it at the current situation at the current moment yeah yeah i i think one of the big problems is clinicians want big questions answered so they want to know does exercise work for plantar heel pain um, and I think when you look at research, it never answers a question like that. It's much more di discreet, isn't it? Um, so, you know, you might get an inclusion criteria in a paper that's above 18, right? But it doesn't mean that everyone in that trial is going to be, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that there's going to be a wide range of ages in that trial. When you look at the baseline data, you might see that the average age in plantar heel pain is 50 or um, so when you do get a patient um, who is 18 and is a runner, and most people in that study are 58, overweight and sedentary, can we therefore say that these two things equal each other? Uh, mm. And so I think that's the point is that clinicians want to know what works for heel pain, right, as a really broad overarching question or answer to that question. They want a yes or a no. Do, does exercise work better than manual therapy, for example? Whereas that paper probably says in this group that is highlighted as the baseline characteristics, um, this is the question that's being answered for these people in this study. Um, so again, it's a game of probabilities, isn't it? So you can say, still say, let's take this paper and say it is some information, but the probability of it having the same outcome is obviously going to reduce if the people in the study don't look the same as the people that you're trying to answer the question for. Um, so, again, it has to come back to specificity and also probability, uh, which are two parts of the philosophy of uh, evidence based medicine. But that runs contrary to this idea of, you know, big questions being answered in a yes or no way that often evidence based medicine seems to be based in. Hmm. What I guess I'm hearing um, and correct me if I'm wrong is. Being evidence-based and to go back to that point of, you know, what is it at the start and, you know, it's not reading heaps of papers and it's, and it, and it can also be, you know, when someone doesn't read a lot of papers, it sounds like there's a pro, it's more of a process and it's a process in the way that we think it's a process in the way that we treat where you're going through and you're thinking about the person, the patient, um, their relationship to start to the studies and what we know, you're going through a process of being uh, informing the patient of all of these different um, treatments and and thing and uh, the benefits, the uh, the um, potential risks, um, and all of their sort of options in between. 
and then figuring out between the two of you what makes the most sense to them. So you're very much bringing that patient along with you because you're recognizing that being evidence-based is not having the answer. It's just about understanding what answers we do have, what we don't have, and using the patient as or helping you helping essentially guide the patient and using them as the um the, the director. Yeah. So there's a difference there, isn't there, between evidence and evidence-based practice. And what we've just discussed there between Adam, myself and you, for me, is the process of evidence-based practice. It's it's actually, you know, using it in a clinical environment. I think that's very different to, to arguing on social media about what evidence says. Does that make sense that there's mm. that one one is about utilizing and one is just about trying to say, does my treatment work better than your treatment? Um, and I think they are two very, very different things. So, again, this boils back down to how do you personally view evidence based medicine? And I think we here, you know, between it, between us three seem to view it as a little bit of a process that does involve a patient and does involve the literature but also involves a process of getting that to a point of using it rather than just what does it say in an evidence uh, piece of evidence. And I think that's maybe where there's a difference between people who work in research and people who work more clinically. There's almost a desire to, to, to not, not be wrong in there as well. Like there's this drive where I, I, I'm the, the clinician and, and I've got to choose the right thing. I don't want to do the, the wrong thing to my patients. I don't want to harm them. When, realistically you know we are um we're just uh we've got to almost throw that away that that sort of idea and embrace the uncertainty of what's happening and be open to making mistakes with our patients um and i'm, I'm wondering if that is you see as as a as a barrier or as the way forward that we should be okay with trying something with the patient it not going well and then coming back and go well great that hasn't worked we've got some great information now uh that we can use and we're now going to 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 use that to help inform us further absolutely i think you know i i would say you know i still think it's good for clinicians to try not to be wrong i think making mistakes is okay but try to make as little mistakes as you can so try to be fully informed and don't make lazy silly you know, mistakes because you're not seeing the obvious stuff. So I would say there's still a role for us there to be trying to reduce the amounts of time that we are wrong, but we don't always have to be right. I think that's a better way of looking at it. I think us clinicians, we have this and human beings just have this desire to want to be right. You know, you see it on social media all the time. Everybody's trying to argue their point and make themselves be right and get somebody else to agree with them. I think we've got to be a bit more open to the idea that we may be wrong uh and uh, you know as you said it's a bit of trial and error it's about of you know this is where i think the probability stands of me being less wrong so i'm going to try this because i've got a strong probability that it's not going to go completely tits up but it may do uh and again that's where i think you know understanding uh, evidence-based practice allows you to have that sort of comfortableness of being uncertain and to be able to you know say right well if this doesn't go according to plan i've got a plan b and i've got a plan c and i've got a plan d based on what i understand 
could also be options for somebody. So it's again, it's it's. I think that's another thing that evidence-based practice gives you. It gives you a range of options to do if plan A doesn't go according yeah. to plan. If you get yourself stuck into that mindset of this is the definite thing for this particular condition and it doesn't work, you're, you're limited, you're stuck, you don't know what else to do. So again, it's having that flexibility and it's having that tolerance of uncertainty and being able to say, adjust and make corrections based on responses that patients do or don't get yeah i don't think you can ever not be wrong in a probability model no. you know there is always a possibility of of, of being wrong isn't there but hmm. i also think we have to think about what is this idea of being wrong you know i think mostly you know you can it, that's being ineffective i don't know if being ineffective is being wrong per se is it it's just not being as effective um, and I think that, you know, uh, probably being wrong is more about adverse events. I would say mostly that, that there aren't that many adverse events in, in, in rehab. You know, we, we can flare someone up. Uh, that generally calms down, um, you know, and I, I think that we need to, you know, move our ideas away from right and wrong to a probability model. And then also the, the idea of being more or less effective. Does that make sense? Uh, I, I think that sits better with me uh, with a probability model. But we also have to accept that population data doesn't equal individual response. And I think that's a big thing is that, you know, a probability model also involves this idea that population level data is about means and averages and, and they paint a picture that we can use at one level. But we also have to appreciate that may not be reflective of the data point that is my person if they were in that study. Um, mm. and, and that's also part of the big challenge, isn't it? So, so I mean, I think Adam's put, put it perfectly there that, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's about trying to be less wrong. Um, but I don't know if we should see it as always right and wrong. You know, because I think wrong is a, is a, is maybe the wrong way to view a probabilistic model. No, I, I like that. I like that delineation between more or less effective, because that that's really what it is, right? We look at something and go, "This wasn't that effective," but it wasn't wrong. It's just exactly yeah. exactly it. I but, wonder but if we get ourselves point, though. One one little point, Alex. That's the point of a confidence interval, isn't it? Is that where that confidence interval sits? between you know less or more effective or uh, positive or negative in terms of maybe a pain mm. gives us an idea of where that parameter of probability is um and so i think it's baked into the statistics we just need to understand the statistics better well that's that's a really interesting point because you know I, I i go back to what i was taught at university about statistics and evidence-based medicine and what i know was is, is still being taught because i actually um had a good chat with a current physiotherapy student um, whose university will, will shall remain, uh, remain nameless. Um, but they were saying it was the exact same thing where, you know, look at a confidence interval and if it goes over the, that, that line, if it's, if it's always in, you know, one side of the graph or it's, it's even just even barely touching the middle point, all of a sudden it means that your, your treatment is no longer effective when really what, what you're sort of highlighting is the confidence interval is sort of that, this is where it, it could fall. And, for, and, and yes. what we're highlighting is that there are treatments that will work for some people, won't work for others. We don't exactly understand the mechanism by which it works enough to be able to pick the person that it works for. It doesn't, but the confidence interval is highlighting that it, it could for both. 
and and maybe that's that's that issue with this whole idea of trying to be right or trying to prove a hypothesis is that it, you can't prove a hypothesis if it goes over that that middle point and and, and you have people that yeah. don't get better at all. So the idea yeah. is the two groups aren't independent. There, there, mm. there isn't a separation between the effect of the two groups. So therefore, it can't be significant. Mm. Uh, and there's a wonderful statistician called Sander Greenland who talks a lot about these type of uh, models. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. That is such a dichotomous way of viewing statistics. It actually, a probability model, um, you know, takes into account that you shouldn't just write something off because it crosses this zero. What it's actually telling us is there is a probability that it could have a negative effect and there is a probability it could have a positive effect. We just don't know where it's going to fall for this person. Yeah. And statistics also takes into account, you know, there's always outliers. There's always people that don't fit within these, um, you say, confidence intervals as well that can have good responses or have bad responses, despite what the mean shows with regards to it. So we've got to understand that. And I think statistics, as I say, is an area that is poorly understood and, and sometimes, again, gets sort of abused and misrepresented because people don't understand it well enough. I don't think statisticians understand statics as good as they should be able to. I think they understand it. They just realise it's really, really fucking complex. Exactly. Those, those that I see are so certain about statistics are normally the people that don't understand statistics the most, even to say the best statisticians that I know are very cautious in what they actually claim statistics show. And I always remember that quote that I always love and I go by you know when it comes to statistics they're a bit like a bikini you know what they reveal okay is quite interesting but what they also hide and conceal can sometimes be bloody vital as well so again or more it's, interesting uh, yeah or more interesting maybe <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah. I, I think it's uh it's a good analogy to have with statistics they're a bit like bikini don't just think about what they show what are they also not showing as well well I I think what we're highlighting and, and this is sort of again the 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 big sort of thrust behind all of this was cause health. And they're essentially saying that we've got to change approach. We've got to change our core philosophy for our approach and the way that we do things. And I think that's what you're highlighting with the statisticians is that, um, you know, uh, that you have these statistics and it's very much how you view them to be used. Because if you're looking at a right, wrong model there's, there's such a thing where the car turned on or it didn't turn on or um the car turned on and it was good and the car turned on it was bad or the car didn't turn on at all and there's these sort of discrete um uh, points yeah. that you can sort of look at um and so they're, they're using a statistical uh, approach or, or looking at the results they're doing the perfect statistics but they're looking at the results in a way that doesn't fit with humans and and, and how we operate uh, but I wonder if if where we sort of go wrong is um, the way that we, as well as as all these other things, is how we look at mechanisms. Because I always sort of look at research papers, and they're always sort of hypothesizing about how things work. But when I when you look at the study and you look at the methods, you're like, well, this is just a, a wild guess, um, because all you did was take patients with pain, take patients that weren't with pain, or take patients in pain and give one group uh, a treatment and one group uh, a placebo and now you're telling us that this treatment that you has all of these wonderful fantastic things but you don't really have anything to base that off and then you know we, we take that bit of information and we go running with it yeah yeah well, absolutely i think there's a there's a lot of post hoc reasoning from research there's a lot of that slippery slope fallacy where people assume just because b happened after a a caused b 
Uh, and again, that's just a misunderstanding of, you know, um, methods of effect when it comes to applying treatments to things such as pain. You know, there are so many other confounding variables that can also cause a change in levels of perceived pain because it is it's an individual multifactorial experience. And so just because we see a research paper that shows a, a B followed A doesn't mean that actually A created the change in B. So it's just that post hoc reasoning. It's just understanding those basic principles again. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with post hoc reasoning, because at the end of the day, you can hypothesize why something hmm. has happened. Right. So I see this and I see this and therefore I'm going it's also to having. Yeah. But it's also having recognition of alternative hypotheses as well. hundred percent. Yeah. But, and I think that's the point is that is that we shouldn't say, you know, I, 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 I think it's good to hypothesize. That's what the discussion section of a paper does, doesn't it? It takes the hmm. results and it says, oh, I think this happened because of this. What clinicians need to understand, and uh, you know, all of us need to understand that it is still hypothesizing. As Adam pointed out, there might be other hypotheses. It might be that the methods used to generate the result don't support that hypothesis. Mm. Do you see what I mean? And again, it, that's understanding the experiment as well. Does, you know, let's take conditioned pain modulation as a proxy for, for you know, uh, pain mechanisms. It's still a proxy. Right. It's still a proxy. It isn't a pain mechanism. There's still a hypothesis about what is actually going on within the body. But someone will take that information and go and say, this has happened because this has happened. And a clinician will go, oh, this has happened and go and tell other clinicians, you know, maybe it's some kind of educational course and suddenly it becomes true. Whereas actually it's just a hypothesis driven by a set of experiments. And again, that comes back to our understanding of what research is. Just because it's written in a paper doesn't make it true or golden. It just makes it a, a hypothesis based around a set of um, a set of experimental parameters. And so that again comes back to what do we view as evidence-based medicine? Do we just say it's in a paper, it's gold, or do we say let's analyze this, let's discuss it, let's be open and critical, but also realize that there are other reasons and other hypotheses hypothesis is I, I like that because it goes back to that. <laughs> I, I like that because it goes back to that probability model because it goes back to you know what what is the likelihood of this being the case what's the likelihood of that being the case um or something else i, I do like there was one paper that you shared um that, I, that just sort of popped popped into my mind um, when we were talking about this on on instagram uh ben where you highlighted uh, the, the study where they looked at people with back pain flares and you know the there was a little bit more complexity to it but what they really sort of were identifying that people who had a flare of back pain often weren't experiencing more pain but what actually changed was their coping mechanism um there were there were impacts to it and i, I think that's you know potentially a really good highlight for what we're sort of talking about here because we would assume that if someone is um saying that they're pain is worse that if someone is is telling us that they're, they're no longer coping that hey their pain has actually gone worse um but potentially when we look at that at, at um at a research level when we don't identify it we might look at that and say oh no that you know their pain didn't get worse therefore they're they're telling fibs or they're lying or um there's you know we can't trust patients or they're over exaggerating when you know really what actually happened was potentially and this is potentially where we need more research in this field looking into these hypotheses or deeper into what is actually happening 
yeah, that the, their um, coping mechanisms changed. So I sort of, I like this sort of approach as probabilities, this uh, looking for alternate explanations. And then I guess the, the, the extension of this is then, you know, looking at our patients and then trying to gain information from them, talking about their experiences, how they went with previous treatments, how things have worked, and then trying to use that as evidence as well to fit in with the evidence that we have in papers and try and make sense of it all. Well, at a clinical level, the more information we can get from a patient, the more potential hypotheses we can make about what's happening here and what we could do um, to help. Um, again, it comes back to options and probabilities, doesn't it? And that is clinical reasoning, isn't it? Being as informed as possible, uh, having the most amount of information and being able to sort that into some kind of usable order um, in, in a probability center of what we're gonna try and do. Um, but this all does come back to Adam's least favorite word, philosophy. Adam philosophy silent. after Plato is just mindless navel gazing in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, you know, I think it's important to highlight that philosophy doesn't always have to be about, uh, uh, you know, like stoicism or, Plato elitism or whatever else. It can just be our personal way of thinking. Um, All philosophy is Platoism, mate. It's just it's just regurgitated Plato. Plato basically discovered everything and everybody else has been trying to cut a niche out of whatever Plato talks about in philosophy. Uh, well, in I think we should place more emphasis on clinicians having personal philosophies and thoughts rather than worrying about the, the in-depth nature of philosophy in general. Does that make sense? You know, yeah, uh, which is I, where I think, I think the term philosophy gets abused. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's an, you've got an ethos. I think that's probably a better term. I, I like word. that word, Mr. Meekins. I like yeah. that word. Because I think philosophy is, you know, it's all that regurgitating, ruminating discussion and all that sort of stuff. But having an ethos, having a, you know, what is your ethos as a clinician? Yeah. Okay. I like that word. I think that's a very apt word of of you know of trying to explain that so i like ethos you've been very profound there plato well done <laughs> it's it's funny because this is i mean you know when i when i started the the uh cause health series and i would approach them i very much said to them straight away is that we're not advertising that you guys are philosophers that that you are aren't an applied philosophy department because at the end of the day you're right there's a lot of negative connotations um, but I think really, you know, my experience with it and how it's helped um, is really that, that philosophy is really just about identifying assumptions, identifying what the approach is, the assumptions that you're taking with that approach, and then challenging those assumptions. Um, so if you are looking at like a research paper, like a right or wrong, that is an assumption. And all that philosophy is doing is pointing out, or it's giving us uh, all of these other examples and people that have thought about this before and said, uh, there is a tendency for us to use this assumption that science has the answer or science doesn't have the answer. And this is an approach, right or wrong, when really actually what we can highlight is there is another approach of probabilities and that's potentially more helpful. But we can, we can look at those two and explore those two and see what fits. And there's potentially, you know, examples in... in in healthcare where taking that right wrong approach is is quite you know good you know think about i'm about to give a drug is this going to kill someone or not there is a right or wrong answer um, yeah, or i'm going to take a uh, i mean ex accident and emergency and i need to you know take this approach right now to save this person's life yeah um i would say that that isn't what we do <laughs> yes 
<laughs> it's, it's, it's exactly, it's highlighting that there is a difference in approach, there's a difference in assumptions, there's a different environment, and that um, substituting or utilizing uh, an approach in that's used in one setting, and that's a very medical setting, and that's the the bio, you know biomedical sort of model and a lot of the assumptions that comes with um, using it in this much more sort of um, less urgent, less um, risky environment um, is useful. And I think that's that's what we just sort of if we if they're not wanting to keep going back around in circles, that's why I think we just keep keep doing. We keep coming back to that. Um, the way that we're practicing, the way that we're taught about evidence-based medicine is, is that model, that that philosophy, that approach, and not this uh, uh, much more nuanced one of probabilities. Yeah, yeah. So it, it probably does boil back a little bit just to giving it a little more thought, doesn't it? Which mm. is the essence of philosophy without, you know, having to get into the weeds of, 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 of the construct that is philosophy. Mm all the fancy bloody words and the pretentiousness around it which is what also pisses me off about philosophy because i one i can't pronounce them and two i can't spell them <laughs> ontological call fuck off none of that pretentious that's what i find really off-putting about philosophy is the pretentiousness and the fucking egotism that surrounds i'm smarter than you I am thinking so deeply <laughs> around this topic and I am philosophizing. Fuck off. You're just using your common sense. Now jog on with your fancy words. We won't start a discussion about common sense because, yeah. <laughs> We're going to get philosophical about common sense. Yeah, I know. We, we can. We can. Because common common yeah. sense is is not, it's based upon what you know. It's based upon what you know already, and it seems like it makes sense to you, but it doesn't make sense to other people who come from different cultures, they have different evidence base. We won't, we won't go there. No, I, I mean, I, I, I do. I take, but no, but I can take your point. I, I do think sometimes that there is a barrier to philosophy because of what Adam talked about, you know, that kind of academic elitism, that kind of, you know, I'm smart because I think. Yeah, or, you know, the terminologies used. Do you know what I mean? They are a barrier for people becoming engaged in the basic process of thinking, mm. um, you know, and, and, get, and, and highlighting that. So, again, I think sometimes if we want more people to think about these things, we have to meet them where they are rather than saying, you know, this is what we do. You have to come to us. You have to be smart enough. Mm. Um, and I think that that can be a barrier now. That might be what some people want because it differentiates them from other people. It depends on your philosophy of how much you want other people to know and think about philosophy. Hmm. I, I think the the it's a, a final point just just to on on this one being um, a, a partner to an applied philosophy department. I feel like that I should mount some defence and 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 it's the it's the not all philosophy departments which is. Um, Full of egotistical, uh, no, no, cardigan-wearing, Plato-book-reading <laughs> fucking knobheads, you mean? Is that what you're saying? With patches on their elbows. Mate, don't describe my wardrobe. Um, <laughs> I like a good cardigan. Um, no, I think I think the what with... I, I think the, the hat's off to sort of cause health and what sort of started all these discussions and, and very much just started here is that... Um, and why I encourage people to do it is uh, uh, to go to and check them out is because 
there is definitely uh, my series came from uh, originally is you know with cause health is to try and break down some of those barriers as best we can and i hope we did an okay job yeah if your philosophy alex is that you want to bring philosophy to people then you are recognizing the problems that might be there and you're trying to adapt that to create that change you know do you see what i mean and I, and that's that's uh that's something if, if, if you want to create that change you would recognize why the barriers to creating that change mm. uh, and that's that's the point isn't it whereas some people quite probably quite like the barriers and again this isn't just about philosophy this is about any situation whereby you know it's 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 create creating barriers or recognizing barriers it's not just about this situation here we could say it about lots of different areas of, of even just of even just you know therapy mm. so i think a good sort of final point is we, we bring it back to um to to the clinic uh and, and to to an example um so if we were to say you've got a patient in front of you um who is trying to decide let's say they have heel pain let's say um, we, we think it's uh, to do with the plantar fascia, so plantar fasciopathy, and they're trying to decide um, between uh, a couple of different treatments, treatment A, B, and C. Um, let's say one might be orthotics, one might be stretching, the other might be uh, a strengthening program. Um, how would you go about that conversation? Because we've talked about how we need to essentially be more prob probabilistic uh, or take a probability-based model that we need to have, make a shared decision-making process. We need to talk about the benefits, the risks, all that sort of stuff. What does that look like in a patient in a patient setting? And specifically this one I've just, just outlined. Well, for me, it would go with pretty much just, you know, laying those A, B and C options out to the patients, probably in the order that I think they have more probability of being successful for that person so uh let's say i've got somebody that i know is poorly motivated has not much time to probably engage in much extra activity um who would is is in a lot of pain and just wants a relatively quick solution to be able to carry around doing their activities uh, for the time being i'd probably put the orthotic as their first option to try to see if that helps because it's something that won't require too much invasion into their day. But then I'd also explain about, you know, how stretching and strengthening are also options for them as well. Whereas if I had somebody else that was fit, engaged, actually wanted something active to do to take a role in improving their situation, I'll probably put the orthotic as the last thing in the order of discussion points. So again, I'd probably change the order around based on the person. I would again, you know, like you said, we talked about explain, you know, the probability of this working is, you know, not 100% certain. Uh, how much probability it is going to work is, is unknown, but I think it's got a strong probability of being successful if we give it a go. But if it doesn't look like it's doing what we expect it to do in X amount of time, then we can try something else and see if that has a better effect for you. So that's pretty much how I would structure that conversation mm. i think it's brilliant simple easy easy to apply and i think that that encapsulates uh pretty much everything that we've, we've discussed uh i wonder ben do you have anything that, that you would add or change do differently 
Well, what Adam has done is contextualised the evidence, hasn't he? And I think that's the key part of translating that into clinic. He's actually thought, you know, let, let's take an exercise programme, for example. You have a mother of three, um, you know, no time, single mother of three, low income, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, lots of these different social determinants that may be going on. Um, we know that she works full time with these kids, probably really limited in time, etc. You know, the option that may be best for her might not be the exercise that works the best. It might be the exercise that actually she has time and ability. So, so let's take an Achilles tendonopathy. I'm just going to use this as an example because I because there's evidence here. We know that heel raises versus heavy, slow resistance we know that they we've compared them and there's not really a difference there. But even if there was a difference, I'd probably still go for the heel raise because that's something that she can probably do at home, minimal equipment. She could, you know, she doesn't have to travel anywhere. She doesn't need any, uh, any heavy barbells or leg presses. We know that you can do a modified Alfredson protocol that takes about half the time, but gets the same results as the full Alfredson protocol. So we're using evidence, but we're also contextualizing it to say, who is this person? What is the likelihood of them engaging and doing it? And these type of things. So I, I, I think for me, again, it's, it's all of these probability and judgment calls, isn't it? Using evidence, but also saying, you know, how does that, how do we contextualize that with the person? Not just this X works better than Y. And when people say to me things like, which exercise works the best? Well, I don't know because I don't know who I'm applying it to. So you can take evidence, but without application to a person, it's really quite redundant. One of the questions that just makes me want to pull my face off every course I do, I must get I get it on every course I do, even though I lay out at the beginning as the education that, you know, about probability and uncertainty and how we haven't got any evidence every time guaranteed two or three times during a course. So what's the best exercise for a superior label lesion test? What's the best exercise for biceps tendinopathy? I'm like, fuck's yeah. sake. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I remember posting on social media once that, you know, a similar thing about, you know, without application or without a person, it's very difficult to answer these questions. And someone said to me, well, you know, you can make uh, some kind of, you know, you, you can say something because there is some evidence, there is some data. Um, I suppose you can. But then again, you will, without contextualization. I'm not going to say do calf raises for, well, but again, you could do, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, calf raises are probably the best exercises for people with shoulder pain, but why not? I can <laughs> yeah, but you don't know whether a shoulder, you don't know whether a shoulder raise or going for a walk is going to be better for that patient sometimes. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. You know, and so... So I do think that the big part of my personal philosophy of using evidence is that it has to have some kind of contextuality and not just because of pain or disability, but also because it has to be implemented. And I think that's where a lot of these social determinants and things like that become really important. And another one I think it's keen just to butt in there is face validity. So I think again, it's a fancy word, but you know, how much credibility does the treatment have to the person that you're giving it to mm -hmm. does the patient actually think this has face validity because if they do it's more likely to have an effect so like somebody coming in with shoulder pain if i was to give them fucking calf exercises to say this will fix your shoulder pain how much credibility is there in that 
for I'd say that yeah plausibility isn't there plausibility credibility face validity whatever you want to call it how much you know how much is that patient actually going to go this guy is off on planet wacko he's giving me calf bloody raises to fix my shoulder pain this guy is fucking talking a different language he's a or you could give them something what you, or you could give them a fancy biomechanical explanation about how it exactly rotates. That's exactly what I was about to say. <laughs> or you could sell the bloody, or you could sell the calf raise. And talk about, exactly. And this is where things, you know, like the deep oblique spiral lines and fascial connections exactly, yeah, and all that yeah. sort of biomechanical stuff comes in. And then the patient's going, ah, okay. Yeah, they're, right. they're, you're, you're creating a, a basic plausibility that when you look exactly. deeper, doesn't have you know doesn't have a good probability exactly but if the plausibility sells then you're probably going to find it could work and i think that's how a lot of the sometimes these weird and wacky treatments do help people you know it's because the plausibility has been sold to the patient the face validity has gone up they're convinced it's going to work and when you've got high expectations and a strong belief that something's going to help boom you're on the road to recovery well, yeah i mean it might, it, it might even be that you know, as we saw that a flare up, so a flare up doesn't always equal less pain, uh, more pain, sorry, it can equal other factors as well. And I think sometimes that pain might not decrease, but people believe they have an answer, or they believe something else that that modulates the way that they feel, not necessarily just their pain. Hmm. I think I think the, the, the only thing that, that, that I could add I think to that is the, or to take your point and sort of to, to add to it would be, you know, the flip side, which is what happens if someone has had an experience with a treatment and come in and it doesn't, and, and they have experience that says it's not going to work. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I see a lot of, I think a lot of yeah. people, uh, specifically if we go back to the original example at the start of it all, which kind of got a bit lost, um, which was ill pain, is that lots of people come in and go, I've had orthotics before, or I've had an injection before, I've had they all of these treatments, you know, these things before and they haven't worked for me, whether it's yeah. in that body part or, or, or another body part. Um, you know, if, yeah, exactly. If you don't have that, that, that plausibility, that validity to that person, then um, or, yeah, they're not, they're not going to go for it. Or the classic one is I've had physio before. <laughs> right so there's generic bucket of of physio whereas you know that can take a whole bunch of different you know i've had physio it doesn't work whereas whereas that, that takes a whole bunch of different variables you know what how one person practices isn't the same as how another person practices but that past experience may negatively affect the future experience even though the experience may not look the same hey, uh you, you get around that very easily by just being a podiatrist and you go, oh, it's completely different. We do things very different here. Yeah. Have another orthotic. <laughs> well, I think, it's, I think it's, a, orthotic. it's not a physio orthotic. It's a podiatrist. Yeah, I like it. It's not a physio. It does something different. It works yeah, it does differently. Something completely different. <laughs> we, we, yeah. I think this is a really, really, that's a really good point to, to end on. And, and I'll, I'll say thank you very much for, for coming on board, having a chat today, sharing your experiences, uh, and I think there's a there's a lot uh, there's a lot to take out of out of this chat, and, and I think there's a lot of you know really sort of key points that we've really explored that I hope everyone has uh, gotten a lot out of and has something that they can go away and think about, uh, if not uh, directly apply to the clinic tomorrow. Um, uh, Alex, hope I hope we apologise if we've offended any philosophers. Yeah. I'm sure you're very nice people. And we should title this attack. We should title this episode 
really dumb people talk about really smart stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I just resent the fact that you're lumping me with really dumb people. I just think I'm just just your average dumb. You're, yeah, you're, you, you are dumber by association with us two. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if people want to uh, follow you guys, uh, hear more about what you think, uh, for the for the couple of people who aren't following you already, um, where 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 do they find you, Ben? Yeah, I was going to say I'm very difficult to find. I'm very shy, um, but yeah, you can generally find me just plastered all over the internet talking shit. Uh, core kinetic, that's me. Perfect, Adam. Yeah, same. I'm across all the socials. Uh, just search Adam Meekins or the Sports Physio, and you'll you'll find me across all the platforms. Uh, talking a lot all the time <laughs> i'm even on tiktok now i'm even on TikTok. are you you come and follow me on TikTok. i'm doing the little dances oh. are you you better not be when when we get ding 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 all up. We'll, we'll end this uh this here before you guys create more uh more things i'm gonna have to edit out uh Thanks again this for joining, talk, joining me. This talk come, is going to a total about five minutes in time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Cheers for the chat. Cheers, mate.